What's up, everyone? Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. So I was recently going through some some files, trying to clean things up a bit, and came across an interview that Jordan Miller and I did under the auspices of the Westar Institute. I don't know when it was, maybe, I think it was a couple years ago now, with John Gill. John is a theopoetic humanist, process philosopher, hip-hop artist, and connoisseur of religion, according to the thing that I found on Open Horizons. Let's see, what else does it say here? As a secular theologian, he implements faint to explicit word pictures of ultimate reality outside of any faith tradition, attesting to the fact that the idea of God is not the prisoner of religious worship. As a philosopher, John directs his interests in post-structuralism, process thought, existentialism, and philosophical theology toward his own interpretation of the universe that he continually develops. So, John's an interesting guy. Glad we had a chance to speak to him, and uh, my apologies to to John, also to Jordan and the Westar Institute for never getting around to pushing this one out. That being said, everyone should go check out the good work of the Westar Institute. And I'll link to that in the show notes. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. And here's John Gill. Peace. Hey, guys. Well, hey, John. Hey, John. How's, How's it going? How y'all doing? We're doing okay. How are you? All right. All right. All right. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Good to, good to see you both. Thanks so much for, uh, for joining me and Matt for a conversation. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's good to build, build with you both. I don't know. We've known each other for better part of a decade, I guess, now at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, introduced to each other by Khaled Keith Perry at a Theopoetics event once upon a time, I think. Um, and John was a member of a roundtable that I organized at the AAR for a few years with Dan Boskeljohn on radical theology and Theopoetics. Um, and for the first couple of years, that, that roundtable was... Uh, kind of organized under the auspices of arts, religion, culture, ARC, the Theopoetics organization. Uh, and then for the the last year we did it, it was under Westar's banner. Um, so there was kind of a natural Westar transition there. Uh, and then John also wrote the hip hop chapter of the Radical Theology handbook that Chris Rodkey and I edited. Um, all that kind of ultimately led to me helping recruit John into the God Seminar for Westar. Um, so there's kind of a uh, an ongoing history of collaboration here with us. That's my kind of background interaction with John. You, John, you've got a million things going on. Like every time I, I see you online somewhere, you're doing like six different things. Um, you want to just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you're up to these days? Yeah, it's it has been the better part of a decade, and you've seen me in several transformations, several several transitions of things. Um, yeah, right now I am the cross community coordinator at the Center for Process Studies, which kind of in my language means I make Whitehead cool. 
And so in some ways, so a lot of the things I do are involving how process thought, which has been a discourse that has not intersected with communities I'm involved with, relates. So um, that involves me doing a podcast, All Things Cosmic, which you and Matt will be a part of pretty soon. And in All Things Cosmic, I um, talk to people who, as the center's tagline says, are working toward a relational worldview for the common good, depending, doesn't really matter how you do that as long as you do that. So the podcast hosts artists, it hosts professors, it hosts um, different types of individuals who do different things. Um, people who are simply involved in social work without nothing to do with aesthetics or several things may come up, but that's all things cosmic. Um, I also do for the center um, a book series called Novel Adventures, which is something that I and Khaled Keith Perry are the co-editors of. And we have, I, I won't say too much about it now, but we have a publishing opportunity from a pretty good publisher that's on that's in the works right now. Not set in stone yet, but the conversations have been pretty good around that. So, but novel adventures is really around um, this intersection of theopoetics, um, theology, justice, other things into texts that are accessible that don't have the price tags of academic texts and also don't have the language of academic texts, but are things that are co-authored or single-authored by people who want to get something useful in the world. So we have a good series of proposals for that series right now, and um, I look forward to more on that. And I also do events for the center. We're doing, we're doing a poetry hip-hop show um, pretty soon. I'm also uh, an assistant professor of philosophy at Gustavus Adolphus College, um, which was a visiting professorship, which turned into a tenure track position. And I've started the tenure track position in September. So I'm doing that as well. Um, I also run a record store with Michael Adame, also known as uh, Phantom Threat. He is the co-owner of our store series cartoons, records, and tapes, and we're opening up a location. We had a location in San Bernardino, California, um, which closed due, which closed due, due to COVID. We just secured a location in uh, Tijuana for a shop, so we'll be opening in Mexico in the end of the year, I think. So that's kind of a nutshell of what I've been up to. That's enough, man. That's certainly enough. By the way, the yeah. Center for Process Studies, great logo over there. Very nice. Yeah, I like the way it's looking now. Like, it's really, yeah, yeah. Shout Matt, out how much you. of that graphic design work are you involved in? Oh, I think I like charging 150 bucks or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, uh, when you first started talking about what you're up to, um, you mentioned making Whitehead cool for people who uh, are in communities that you're involved in, but that normally wouldn't be exposed to process stuff. Um, could you talk about what, what those communities are? Like, what, what are your audiences? Who are, who are your people? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a lot of my audience with what I'm doing is in, in that role is the hip hop communities in Southern California and, and actually extending beyond that, um, even, even now to the East Coast, Boston, um, New York, that community. Also communities of people who are on the ground doing social justice work who've never attended a theological school or a graduate school of any sort um, who resonate with some of what the center talks about, some of what the center pushes toward. 
also communities who have been historically marginalized. And yeah, I would also say the youth who historically have not been associated with the center unless they were going to a grad program. <laughs> um, but um, what I found is there's a small number, it may, it may be more than I know, but there's, a, there's at least a small number of young business professionals who have an interest in Whitehead are doing some interesting things in the community with that sort of, not necessarily with Whitehead being in the forefront, but their understanding of process kind of has pushed them into certain roles in, several, in certain communities. And, and when I say um, professionals, I really mean, um, because that word could be used in different ways. When I say professional, I really mean small business owners. Some of them are, were in the hip hop scene. And there's actually a coffee shop in downtown Claremont where um, the owner, shout out to Calligraphy, um, we were talking one day and I realized that he had gotten turned on to Whitehead in one of his philosophy classes. And he's probably one of the youngest business owners in Claremont right now. So it's, it's, it's him. Um, there's also, there was a point in time when I was doing, when I was touring a lot with hip hop. I'm also, I didn't mention, I'm also an MC. And there was a point in my life when I was basically a touring artist. And I, that's kind of how I did what I did. Um, in um, San Francisco, there's an art gallery called the Honey Hive, and it's run by this guy, um, Dan Berliner. And he had a crew, Bottled Water. I don't think Bottled Water's together anymore, um, but it was a, a two-person crew. And the other MC, um, Dan, Dan is, Dan is one MC, um, and, but the other MC who, who went by Max Bardico, actually, another, is another person who, I, who I, I found had a strong interest in Whitehead. And a lot of his rhymes were actually, a lot, a lot of their rhymes really were centered around these notions of multiplicity and these notions of understanding the world as an organism, as, as opposed to substance. These are just two examples of people who I've encountered in this small business world this small business professional world, I'd say, who I, I have this interest in Whitehead and, and just the stuff that I'm doing, I'm hoping is making a space for them. And people who don't even do this sort of work, um, Queen Heroine from Juggernauts, she'd never really read anything about Whitehead. Um, she's a legendary MC. She's also an educator. She had a podcast called The Process Sessions. It really revolved around how artists from start to finish, make their creation. So she has different people and she kind of charts their process in creating art. But we had a long talk about this and, and even her philosophical perspective on education really resonated with, with mine and what we're doing. So without mm -hmm. even having read any of this, and this is just to go, just goes to show you, well, there's several people who, of course, obviously think this way, but may not have that vocabulary and, and don't need it. That's the biggest part about it. You don't need it. You know, so that that's kind of a nutshell, a short, long story about that. I was really curious about the thing you were saying about sort of getting at the upshot of process thought, whether it be for activism or whether it be like you're saying entrepreneurship or for sort of cultural productions, this kind of thing. It, individual particular artists aside, you've already mentioned a few of them. I'm just curious if you can talk about what you think that upshot is like, how do you approach that sort of intersection, what's important about that to you? Mm -hmm. Great, great question. Yeah, and th this even starts with my own history in underground hip-hop and just being immersed in that world and then trying to kind of 
understand why there were certain boundaries that the outer world drew that in underground hip hop didn't really exist um, or didn't exist in the ways that they were drawn outside of the, the culture. Uh, you know, um, and this whole thing I say is kind of like what Common's dad said on, because there was a period of time when the rapper Common would have his father on his albums doing the outro. And this was the second time he did that. And this is the album like Water for Chocolate. And he made the statement that real hip hop could sit on your nose and your brain still remain froze. And I kind of looked look at that as really a metaphor. What he was getting at is like this, this underground consciousness, which is that you, you can go into a record store that supports an indie scene in, in a particular region. You would never know what's going on unless you were tapped into it. And if you're tapped into it, then there are certain flyers that make sense. There's certain logos you might see around the city that make sense. So in this underworld, things didn't map out the way they the way they, they did in the above ground world. And sometimes the above ground world is on the same level as the underground world, except for in one instance, there was this place in Chicago. There was a spot it was called the underground it was it literally it was in a basement so that was the underground but a lot of times things happen on the same literal level but anyway um there there were certain racial lines certain cultural lines certain certain philosophical lines etc that, that didn't play out in the indie world as they played out in the maybe more mainstream world to be and when i encountered process thought kind of like by an accident i talk about this in my first book I took a class by accident. I was like, this, this, this looks interesting. Process theism. What is that? I just jumped in there. And as I began to read more, I'm like, well, this is kind of what underground hip hop is. You know, it's this multiplicity. It's this thing that resists these labels that we're so quick to put on things. And I began playing with process thought, especially white Indian process thought, as a way to explain this was a really poetic, um, a really, I would also say densely philosophical ideas of God came in there because why the idea of God was really compelling to me in relation to underground hip hop and how underground rappers themselves are kinds of white Eddie and God since they basically take what's already there and are poets of the world creating it. So I think Whitehead's language and Whitehead's understanding of multiplicity kind of helped me just to understand what I wanted to say about underground hip hop. And maybe for other people that may not do that, but for me, it was very helpful for that. So that's kind of why I think it's important. Um, and some people seem to think it is as well. So. Yeah. So in your opinion, what other artists like most embody that sort of that intermingling, that, that mix of process thought and hip hop culture. And then as a sort of follow-up question, you can, you know, take this however you want. Yeah. Um, who's your favorite hip hop artist of all time and why? Yeah. I'm not saying like, who's the goat or anything. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, who do you, who's your favorite? Like, what is it about them that brings them, brings them up to the top for you? Yeah. That's a, that's actually a really cool question. Yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, I already mentioned queen heroin. I would, I would say, um, breeze Bruin, her brother, who is also an educator, I think he does that. I would say um, Quell from Typical Cats 
Gaja, who just passed, um, rest in peace, of Project Blodian, um, who was in, in, in the group Acid Rain, legendary underground MC from the West Coast. I would also say Ghostface Killer from Wu-Tang definitely does for me, especially in the records um, Supreme Clientele and Iron Man. Armand Hammer, who I'm actually, just a, a quick plug, I'm doing a reading group for the Center for Prost Studies where we're reading DZ Phillips recovering religious concepts and listening to Armand Hammer's corpus and, and looking at what Phillips and Armand Hammer say about the possibilities of God language. So the, Armand Hammer as well, I'd say. But you asked my favorite, my favorite artist. Um, if I had to... That's you do have one. to. I do have to, so I don't got no choice. All right. <laughs> I love it. Um, I would have to say, and this is super hard. Could I do a toss up or do I just, I had to, I, 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 I to pick one. You got to do what you got to do. So yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's see. Um, well, we only have time to talk about one. So you got to pick one. Then. Right, right, right. I got, I got I, I to pick one. Uh, okay. Um, I wish I would know you're going to ask me this, but I should have, I should have thought that you might. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to stump you this easily. <laughs> you actually did. Like you, 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 you got me on this. Like, man, if, if I, if I had to go with one, I'm. <sighs> Matt, he's been talking about multiplicity the whole time. You want him to pick one? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I mean, listen, I have an answer too. It's, it's not like, you know, you just have to yeah. pick one, man. Just, I, I had to pick one. You know what? I'm going to actually say somebody already say it then. Breeze Bruin. All right. Like, um, he, I mean, in terms of his conceptual ability and his breath control and his overall just ability with words, one of my favorite rappers of all time. Like, you know, and this is evident in his solo work and his work with Juggernauts when he's on tracks with people, even like Aesop Rock. Aesop Rock is a hard person to outrhyme, but he does it. Well, I won't say he does it, but he, it's not like anybody's killing anybody on a song with Breeze Bruin. Like, there's a song that came out, actually, he's on an Armand Hammer song, just came out with him and LP from Company Flow, but oh, Breeze yeah. Bruin's one of my favorite. LP's my guy. He's amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. Like, he would be in that conversation, too. Like, that's why I'm saying, like, man, do I pick L? Do I pick Vaz? Do I pick... Because that whole Def Jux thing was sort of yeah. formative for me. Agreed. Agreed. Maybe we can circle back to the hip hop stuff, but I was curious. I didn't make it all the way through this book. You see it? Thanks again for Yeah, toward uh, Afro diasporic and Afro futurist philosophies of religion really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed it. This isn't the kind of thing that I normally dive into. So I really enjoyed it in that sense. And uh, I had a couple questions about it. I, was, I wanted to ask you about it. Like, what themes are most present in this kind of developing variety of philosophy of religion. I was curious about this difference you'd want to make maybe between the themes 
or methods between this discourse that's inherited and the one that your work and the work of your students are pushing toward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything started from the question. Well, okay. We have philosophy of religion as it stands. We know it's history. Um, I think in many ways it's pretty dope, but the question would be if religion in the sociological sense and in the way that I'm going to use it, if religion as meaning making, if that is what the cultural products of the Afro diaspora do, can the categories of the philosophy of religion talk about those things? And are the questions different? And if they if they are, how should we be talking about? It? And that's kind of where we started it, you know, and just um, what the students came up with, many of them who, who are dealing with artists who are dealing with, with, with rappers, novelists, several strands of aesthetic productions, they're really asking the questions, well, hmm, is theodicy really something that applies to this? Is this whole existence of God thing, is religious language and the ways we've talked about, are, are, are these things really essential? And then to bring in the whole Afrofuturism discussion, is Afrofuturism maybe a better philosophy of religion? And these are the sort of questions that we were asking in class. So I think to answer what you were asking, Matt, it was less about intentionally breaking away from these categories because in the class, which the class was of the same name as the text, they they had to go through Western philosophy of religion to see what was up with it. And it seems like many of them said that these categories just don't work, you know? Mm. This text is just them running, running around in a playing field I loosely set up. And this is kind of what they came up with. So many of their responses were, well, it wasn't necessarily that there, that there are these categories that ground Afro-diasporic, Afro-philosophy. They were playing around with the ideas that well, what, what we're reading and, and what is called classical philosophy religion just doesn't work for this. Yeah. Uh, I was really sort of uh, taken with a lot of different sources and different points of reference that the different essays work with. I, like I said, I didn't get all the way through it. I saw there is Nietzsche in there. I was sad not to get to Nietzsche, but um, you know, <laughs> that's a, a lot good of, essay. Ben, it, I'm going really, yeah. to, I'm, I'm going to finish it this week, but there's a lot of uh, hip hop artists mentioned and there's some, some funk and sci-fi stuff going on along with, you know, the obligatory academic material as well. Um, that emphasis on, I guess, on cultural references makes me wonder to what extent an Afro-diasporic, uh, an Afro-futurist philosophy of religion is informed or expresses or a more strident uh, theopoetic impulse. That's the impression I'm getting. You know, mm -hmm. tell me if I'm I'm off base with that. But yeah, like how does that sort of thing give shape to generate a philosophy of religion that is, and I guess this kind of ties back to the question in a, that I was just asking, Mm -hmm. uh, that's on one hand recognizable as a philosophy of religion, mm -hmm. but then, yeah, like sort of troubling, like you were saying, troubling the foundations of that, that kind of discourse. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that theopoetic impulse is certainly a good way to talk about it because I think that I did have them at the beginning, look at theopoetics. So we kind of started in contrasting classic philosophy of religion or what people call classical philosophy of religion with with more theopoetic resources um so starting before enlightenment stuff and going forward and looking at different resources and then, and then going forward and looking at caputo keller 
Khaled's work and other things of that nature. So we did start with them playing around with this idea of theopoetics and, you know, looking at the container of something and seeing if if the container that something is in is saying something more about the thing that's in it than we're giving it credit for. So in terms of this whole notion of it being recognizable, a recognizable philosophy of religion that's still challenging on anything, I would I'm not sure if it always will be. And where the students were coming out to some of these essays don't have that much to do with what we know as philosophy of religion. But um they're still engaging these engaging Travis Scott, engaging Erica Badu, engaging um Most Deaf, engaging Sylvia Winter, engaging other thinkers from perspective that's not totally disconnected from what they're doing, but it is in some ways stepping back and analyzing how this is making meaning. So the language in some in some ways is certainly not. I don't think it is. And this is why some people say, what does this have to do with philosophy of religion? But there are certain questions I think that are they are wrestling with. You know, what is the nature of these things that we call divine? How, how do these things we call divine, whether they're rappers or whether they're actual transcendent entities or or ideas how do they affect how life is lived in the world especially for the marginalized especially for the marginalized who who, have been marginalized because they've been structured under some sort of afro diasporic oppressive framework and that's kind of that's kind of i think where they where they wrestled with yeah my entry point for thinking about this is and maybe it's a little anachronistic you know tillich who you know talks about the theology of culture um and maybe not something that center people doing this kind of work center on, but it is an important point of reference for me, right. That can recognize different locations in culture as legitimate sources of theological reflection. So, yeah, I mean, the, the thing you were saying about the container before was interesting to me because we we've been talking a lot about process philosophy uh, about theopoetics, but not about theology yet. Um, and some of the some of the early conversations you and I had were precisely around like Tillich, yeah. Altizer, radical theology, and Aesop Rock, who you mentioned a little while ago. And so I was just wondering if you if you wanted to bring in that that theological framework, that particular container into the conversation. How how does that fit in? Yeah, for sure. For me, those are always important containers. You know, um, I have I have an affinity toward those containers. You know, um. And when introducing philosophy of religion to the students, Tillich was a big part of that. So was Altizer. I actually had them watch um, his discussion at Emory when he was talking about the basis of death of God theology. And we kind of we kind of put that in, in conversation with the Afropunk Festival and looking at, well, how is that a death of God of sorts? And, and so and so, yeah, that's definitely a big part of what I bring to the table. Um, that's important to me. Now, I believe the first essay, Dre Denson's work, who is writing on this notion of what does a Black trans theology win if we play by James Cone's I think I think Dre does bring in um, Tillich and some of those resources. Other people didn't. Other people heard me and they're like, yeah, that's, that's cool. 
it's not bad, but we ain't really into that. You know, so, <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so, so they ran in their own way and I was fine, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, for, for me, I value those voices. I value those voices with the problems they had. Um, I still think that what they had to say has certainly shaped me and it certainly has been valuable. So I have a critical appreciation for it. Emphasis on critical and emphasis on, on also appreciation. I was curious about something you said in there, sort of almost a throwaway line about some sort of relation you, you've given some thought to maybe between Afropunk and the death of God. Is there something there? Well, well I think so. Yeah. Um, right, tell me about it. Yeah. Um, I'll even start with this anecdote. My father never was really a fan of Hendrix because his opinion was he sold a movement out and he, you know, he's over there with the white people and he's doing this and that. And he's not, you know, um, now, um, fast forward, I'm getting to Afropunk with this too, but, um, fast forward to Common's electric circus album, where he basically uses a Sergeant Pepper cover and does this tribute to classic rock. And, and at the end uh, as a whole homage to Jimmy with Erica Badu singing a song as Jimmy, 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 Jimmy was a rock star. It's no rapping in it. The point I'm getting to is with that is there's a certain normalcy and a certain idea. Well, if you have roots in the Afro diaspora, then these attributes follow X, Y, Z. You should be this. You should be that. And Jimmy said, fuck that. This is the same thing that, that, that groups like death do. Who were a group of, um, I think it was four brothers from Detroit, look like me, precursor to the Ramones. Um, they they recorded the, this, this record and didn't really they 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 were they were approached by some labels, um, but the label said, "No, nah, well, you you got you got to play soul music. You can't do this because we, we we can't market this because you don't look the part for this." So anyway, the record gets shelved for like it would the record, the punk record they did or, 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 the, or what people now call punk never came out. You fast forward about 25 years later. Their sons found the record. It was on real to real. They they presented that to a label and the label eventually released it. This is but this is but this is just one example of okay well you don't fit you don't fit the mold therefore we don't know what to do with you and 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 for me the death of god is this sort of death of normalcy you know it's this it's this breaking open of these things that said well this is what you have to be and it's the taking into your as 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 an altizer repudiates the resurrection and says no well this is the going into this is the, this is more the going into flesh how, how does one take over their own destiny and how, how does one create themselves and recreate themselves and this is kind of what i see um what, what people call afropunk doing I would be remiss if I didn't ask a follow-up and just say, uh, got any got any thoughts on Bad Brains? Yeah. And see, actually, I'm glad you brought up Bad Brains because um, that's, a, that's a great example. And um, death actually predates them. 
you know, like, yeah, I, mean, like I, I want to say like NPR, somebody did a, did like a full hour episode on that death record. Yeah. There was an uh, article I, too. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe like article, yeah. three, three years ago, something like that. Five years ago when, when like, mm-hmm. when the anniversary of it came out um, mm-hmm. of when they had recorded it and they did like a reissue um, that got more press than, than when their sons, you know, transferred it and got it out the first time. But yeah, I mean, like, it's funny. On the one hand, there's the there's the the black cultural production of popular music um, that gets kind of cannibalized by white pop, right? And and there's kind of a, a through line there. But there's also like there's the Detroit scene. There's mm-hmm. you know MC5. There's yeah. uh, Iggy Pop. Like there, that there's a whole tradition there of of really radical music in in ways that prefigure punk in different formats so that like death is kind of a lost conversation partner in that history. Yes. Um, I don't know. That wasn't really coherent, but uh, I, I love this. I love this. <laughs> no, no, it's important to say though. It's, it's, it's really important to say because Iggy Pop is going to tell you like, yeah, I know, who, I, I, I know who they are. It is important. There were a lot of things happening. This even goes back to the whole point, especially talking about, the D, Detroit, because a lot of things happened there. The beginning of techno, which some people refer to as techno house, but there was there were different styles of it that came out of Detroit. It becomes this sort of thing to where, once again, and this is where Whitehead's helpful, the lines that society says we need to draw between entities, human entities, just don't work. If you look at the creators of what we call techno in Detroit, it's the exact same thing. These lines just don't work or they're being transgressed unknowingly in many instances. People are just doing what they want to do, you know? And then, then you're told, oh, you can't do that because you should be doing X, Y, Z. And then, as you said, this cannibalization, um, Jordan, to where people who hear techno now think it came from somewhere in England, or think craft work, which craft work is a big part of this conversation, don't get me wrong. But many, many times the perception is, well, that didn't come from a body who looked like mine originally, but it really did. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm thinking the example that's coming to mind for me is, oh, what's that sample that everyone used for like the original like drum and bass stuff? It was like, I think it was like a James Brown riff or something. Talking about the Winston. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I've been listening to drum and bass for you know a couple of decades at this point, and I didn't realize that until last year. That's actually one of my one of my passions. Not many people know, but I'm heavily in the drum drum and bass. That's one of oh, my yeah. things. No, like, I love it, man. It's amazing. That's the only music that really makes me dance, like like really dance. You know, the beautiful thing about drum and bass is you know it's you go to a D and B setting. This is really a a personal experience you're having amidst people because nobody's dancing with anyone else. They're, everybody's in their own vibe, but everyone's together. So yeah, it's it's a great, it's a great genre. Love it. I wanted to return to um, James Cohn, who you mentioned briefly, and in the uh, Aphrodite Sport book, Several of the people who are writing talk about the importance of, but also the inadequacy at times of a more, I don't know, maybe we can say tradition, quote unquote, traditional 
black theology mm-hmm. um, a la Cone. Can you talk about some of the things that come up in, in those kinds of conversations, the debates that one might hear in those kinds of conversations that I'm not privy to? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, well, a lot of what Dre is dealing with in the inaugural piece is kind of Cone's oversight of anything non-heterosexual, which he eventually corrects and he eventually apologizes for that and says, well, this is this is an oversight. Um, okay. That's a big part of it. Um, not the only thing, but this is what Dre addresses in that piece is that, well, if I, as non-binary individual, a non-binary identifying individual, if I utilize this, how is it putting me in bondage and how is it oppressing me while liberating me? And this is why Dre has a critical appreciation of Cohn's work. And they, I'm going to talk about this notion of win. Well, what does it mean to win? Do I only win in Cohn's theology if I'm heterosexual? And if I'm not, am I either trampled on theoretically or am I left out of the conversation? And this is what what Dre is wrestling with. Other people bring up those who responded to Cone and Monica Coleman, who was my advisor. Their pieces in um, Desiree Wall, Rawls' work, who was really interested in this problem of evil, brings in Coleman um, in light of a theodicy that looks different and a theodicy that re- revolves around these process notions of God, where, where, where God is not all powerful, where the win, to go back to Dre's language, the win is a lure. And that lure that doesn't mean that you'll be victorious. That lure simply means that there is this conceptual push towards something that, that's better. And there's also, in Coleman's discussions, and this is in some ways, um, well, Coleman has three points that she says that Black and womanist theology traditionally get wrong. The first thing is it's too Christian. That's the first problem, is that, is that the language does not cover the diaspora. And for, for Coleman, women in particular, distinctively Christian. And this doesn't talk about the religious, a religious experience of, of various people. Second, we already talked about heteronormativity. That's an issue. This is why she creates what she calls and making a way out of no way, a third way womanist thought. She says, well, when you say black, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about the person in Veracruz, Mexico, who looks like me? Are you talking about J-Lo in Puerto Rico? Are you talking about those in Australia, what do you mean when you say that word? And for Coleman, the critique of womanist and black theology is, is that word is utilized to, to mean the Afro-diasporic US experience. And so this is something that we work toward pushing back on in the class. Um, and I even challenge use of the word black itself. But when we utilize this term, well, what do we mean by it? And who's included, who's excluded? You tell me. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I would say, in agreement with Coleman, that those who are not 
born in the U.S. are excluded with it, are at least in most of the scholarship that comes through Black and womanist theologies. Who is the focal point? This is something that uh, Michelle Gonzalez brings up in her book, Afro-Cuban Theology. She she cites this anecdote of her her own life when she was a student at Union, and they had a day where it was in commemoration of the Middle Passage. It was something like that. I forget exactly what it was, but in the chapel, Union, people were told, okay, well, white people, because I put all this shit in quotes, white people sit here on this yeah. side of the, of the room. Black people sit here. And when Michelle went in, she was like, okay, well, where do I sit? And she was told, that, and, and, and basically what she says from her own mouth is that, well, the people who have roots in the continent we now know as Africa, whose family may have been through chattel slavery, who had been friends of hers were looking at her like, like, like she was crazy. What do you mean where you sit? You, you definitely don't sit with us, you know? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. I was gonna <laughs> say cue, cue the Dave Chappelle skit, you know? Yes, exactly, exactly. Shout to Dave. But as um, a person of Afro-Cuban descent from her own identification, she's like, well, where do I fit into this? And, you know, I think about my grandmother, who was actually grew up in Honduras, was born in Belize. Um, how would she understand herself? Would these, would these conversations reflect her experience? Would someone look at her and say, well, you don't, you're not warranted this categorization? And again, we're dealing with categories. So this is kind of what we played with. And this is why we paid attention to the places sometimes the black and woman is the uh, uh, does not pay attention to, like 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 we we spent we spent some time on Ireland, we spent time in the UK, we spent time in Mexico, we spent time in Puerto Rico, we spent time in various places that much not all because there are definitely exceptions, but we we tried to spend time in places where much of black and womanist theology for some reason doesn't go. One piece that I was thinking about, John, when you were describing um, Coleman's critique of a kind of naive use of the term black to refer to something very specific, kind of uncritically, right? And then Matt's question a minute ago about kind of theopolitics and cone has me thinking about uh, the way liberation theology has been picked up in kind of the white academy in North America. Mm -hmm. Um, that in some ways it's kind of a, a, a flip side of what you were describing where like black refers to the black North American experience, um, not black people globally necessarily. Right. And that liberation theology kind of almost functions in a reverse kind of way where there's this um, like Latin American liberation theology that gets codified uh, and then just picked up and used however white academics want to use it. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking in particular of Marcella Althaus Reed's essay, Gutierrez goes to Disneyland. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, yes. where, she, where she talks about it as kind of like a, a disciplinary tourism. Like it's fun to visit. It's fun to like take some souvenirs home. But when, when the point is to be transformative, 
that's actually doing like a real disservice to to the um, to to the ideas that you're working with, right? And and to who they're for and what they're supposed to mean. That's not a question. It's just where where my head went when you were when you were talking about that stuff. Yeah, thank you for actually bringing that because because we talk about this a lot. Um, I've even been saying it in my I'm teaching a course on oppression and privilege right now, and um, we're talking about what it means for academics to talk about justice. Is this the sort of thing where Gil Scott Harrison, the revolution will not be televised, but now it is televised, so it's no longer a revolution? And, and this is sort of something that, yeah, what you're, what, you're, what you're bringing up, Jordan, is really, really on point, I think. Um, and this is not even an, an answer. It's more a question on top of, on top of what, you're, what, what you're putting out. Like, what does it mean for us to even be publishing shit? Why does it mean for us to do any of this? You know, um, is publishing through these systems or, or, or even putting something on paper at all, is that the antithesis of what we're doing or what we say we're about? It does bring up those questions, you know, um, what, do you, what do you do with this? And, and it doesn't just apply to those who don't identify as part of the context of liberation theology speaks of, it also applies to them as well. Because now you, you got tenure off this book. You know, early on uh, in this conversation, John, you were talking about the difference between uh, kind of the mainstream and the underground uh, and the ways that certain uh, kind of epistemologies don't translate back and forth between the two. Um, you were talking about doing work to uh, kind of bridge the gap or break down the boundaries between um, kind of hip hop and the arts on the one hand and process philosophy on the other. Uh, so I wonder if part of what part of what's going on here is not so much is the revolution televised or who's it for, or are we betraying something by um, kind of being public and trying to do this translation work, but rather what does it mean to try to break down the boundaries that keep these conversations kept in one location or another? I think that's a really good way to say it. Yeah. Cause see, I always ask my students the question and I, and I, and I, and I, I don't answer it cause I kind of want to see where they go. And many of them do go there. That yeah, this is, this is not necessarily a bad thing because the system itself in which you're playing can be used to achieve the purpose that, that you want to achieve. I, I think that's also a part of it. I think this is kind of what, um, Rob Saylor brings up in his book on Radiohead, what um, all these things in the position, what theology can learn from Radiohead. He kind of, I think, elucidates that, well, you have a group who, after OK Computer, gains this commercial success, and they also begin to build these underground followings. Because, I mean, for me, the word underground really uh, really is associated with a certain lack lack of access to exposure, but sometimes one has the same amount of exposure, if not more, than someone who may be considered commercial. But what I would what I would say at that point makes makes them different is how they utilize that. What does Radiohead do with the exposure they have? Do they continue to fuel a certain type of machine, or do they utilize that machine against itself? And so, yeah, I do think that that's that it doesn't necessarily mean that selling out is occurring. It just means that 
there is a possible subversive use of the system itself. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the Radiohead example is is a good one, and and Rob Saylor's book is fantastic. Um, the the way that Radiohead has been kind of on each subsequent record trying to um, change the media landscape, pioneering the pay what you want for the record model, um, you know, before Patreon existed, before Bandcamp was what it was. It's gotten me thinking, um, your comments, John, have gotten me thinking about, you know, Gil Scott Heron and the revolution will not be televised coming out of time at a time when the studios controlled everything. You know, labels and studios were were monopolies on this kind of content production. And we're now at a point where the difference between mainstream and underground can't be reduced to whether it's on TV or not, uh, because TV as a handful of channels on a black box in your living room doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Like television um, in, in terms of media is like, you know, basic media theory, right? It, it's an entirely new world with, with the internet and social media. And so I, I, I mean, I almost want to go into like meme culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you were talking earlier on, John, about um, seeing flyers in a record store, and if you're not hip to the code, then you wouldn't know what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's happening with uh, international media as well, not just like local scenes, but international media too. Yeah, that's that's true. And it happens on certain wavelengths, you know, conceptual wavelengths to where if you're in Japan, you may see a similar idea coming from Spain and you get it. And it seems like what's what's interesting too around these things, there's certain there's a certain devotion that develops around certain types of symbolism, which may be different than some things that happen in the conceptually above ground space. So I think the global example is very important, Jordan, because I say, well, the underground scene has always been a worldwide thing. There's a difference I see between individuals who go to clubs and the music it's kind of like um, the, the music is a means to an end. Well, the music is a means to maybe meet someone or hang out with friends or is the backdrop to drinking or something like that or dancing. And then there's the there's the type of person who goes to who, who goes to a club. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of DJ clubs now. And when you talk about office read, I kind of brings brings to mind how the way she starts, I think, in decent theology and a, and a Salah Savar, but her use of Salah is kind of sort of different, but I think she starts it there. But yeah, then there's the people who go to clubs to see the DJ. So for example, like we're talking about drum and bass, Matthew, um, Bookham has been playing a lot recently. He's been, he's back on track. I think he's in the US now again. You may have a person who might go to a club and happen to be there when Bookham's playing. They don't even know who he is. Then there's people who are coming there just to see him. And that's the kind of difference I see between this kind of devotion that comes through the underground scene. The radio has been really good at developing that. So has Armand Hammer. So has Aesop Rock. So has Bahamadia. So are the Juggernauts. It's like several people. Death now, especially with this whole resurgence, I, I would venture to say, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the question as to 
what extent or if publishing is some sort of betrayal of some of some sort is one that I've spent some time with. And um, I, I'm not sure that I have like a definitive response to it, but I guess I would kind of return to that. What's that old? Uh, it's a quote or a maxim, right? The pen is mightier than the sword. And, you know, I'm thinking about the proliferation of ideas, especially in a sort of media environment that is not favorable to more anarchic, more liberative points of view. I think there's a demand for folks who have a different point of view to get it out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually end my intro to philosophy class this semester with a KRS-One lecture. And he says something just, just like you said, um, that, you know, we we talk about all this keeping it real and all this shit like that. And we and and sometimes he's making the point like, well, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot doing that because you're fighting a revolution you've already won. Because now we're in an era where there is a certain attention being given to types of art that are seriously reflecting on the way the world is. So mm -hmm. how, how do you get that out? You use the system that's playing it at this time. Now, maybe the system has their own reasons for doing that, but that, but they're doing it. So KRS is saying you're fighting a battle. You have, you have to on the picket line and you're still waging war and you're not taking advantage of the opportunity to say X, Y, Z. So yeah, it's, it's, it is, it does become this pen is mightier than the sword thing. And then when, the, when the door opens, do you keep it real or do you walk in that door? You know, and he has a lot of examples around that to where people are being able to do exactly what they want to do more or less. There's some instances where, no, you're not being coached to do this. He, he had a situation where he was, he was doing a commercial for, for I think it was Hennessy, I want to say. And he was like, look, I don't want to have nothing. No, KRS-One did that? Yes. yes. Oh, I never saw that. This was a while ago. Like, um, but, you know, I think it just may have been, I think he said it was, just, it, was, it was just for their website. And he said, I don't want to have any liquor in my head. I don't want to do anything like that. I just want to give you a song. And that's, that's kind of what, what, he, what he did. So he did it on his own terms. So it is that side as well. Like, you know, what yeah. does it mean to utilize? the system for yeah. the advantage. Fair. You want to talk about KRS-One real quick? Yeah. It's one of my favorite people. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of dropped off after I got next, but I mean, I know he's been doing stuff. I know he's still active, but yeah. what have I missed? Do you, do you sort of like keep, do you keep tabs on him? I kind of do. Yeah. I'm more or less do. Um, you know, but you know, you know about the whole temple of hip hop stuff, right? Is that still going on? I know that was a thing a while back. Um, is that a legitimate institution, quote unquote, at this point? I believe it still is. Yeah. 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 Okay. They're not as active as they used to be, but it still is. Yeah, it still is. And there and then there are people who are devout followers of it, of course. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's still it's still going on. I know he just put out a song, I think, yesterday. I want to oh, say. Wow. OK. Yeah, he's he's been productive in the temple just that just that phrase in and of itself the temple of hip-hop i mean it's hard to avoid the sort of you know theological or religious uh sort of valences uh yeah in, in that you know yeah i talked about that a little bit in my um in my underground rapper's religion book um really reflecting on on his book the gospel of hip-hop 
which is oh man, it's um it's 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 a really interesting text. Um, where he he in so many words says it well. There are several traditions, and there are several traditions for each time has its variety of traditions. And he's saying, well, hip hop is the tradition of now, and this is whether you acknowledge it or not, where people are finding meaning. And he talks about that in, at length. The, the gospel was like 800 something pages. It's, yeah. Oh, really? I, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, it's super dope. It came out, I want to say in 09, something like that. Okay. Yeah, I just looked it up. 2009, uh, Simon & Schuster. We'll include that in the show notes. But KRS is, yeah, he's... He has some super dope ideas, you know, and I think he spends a lot of his time now just just doing lectures. Now he's he's still recording, but I think yeah. most of his time is spent just like doing lectures. I've never heard him give a lecture, but I would imagine it doesn't sound that different from his uh, from his musical production. <laughs> he has a certain yeah. cadence that I feel like is going to carry you into the class. He's going to take into the classroom, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, the teacher. So you know, but, yep, you know it. He rocks. He 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 rocks those places without a beat. You know. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. No. Listen, I I, I love Karis One. I just like after a while. I don't know if you have this similar experience with other kinds of artists. It's just like, all right, I've heard what you've done. <laughs> yeah. You're not doing yeah. anything, you know, that radically new. After a while, it's just like I love you, man, but I'm I'm moving on. Oh, <laughs> totally. Totally, because I'll be real with you. Like his output, I would I would agree. After I got next, his output gets really spotty. Like you know, yeah. there's some gems, but you have to look sometime for him. Like you know, and and if Chris is listening, respect, no no disrespect. But it's just it's in my opinion, yeah, there are some some really shaky parts after I got next. Because I don't know if y'all heard the stint where he went into a quote-unquote type of gospel rap. I don't know if you heard no. that record. Mm-hmm. It was called Spiritually Mind. And this is the thing about it. It was so interesting. This record was more on the lines of religious pluralism, mm. but the conservative Christian bookstores never listened to it, so they were selling it. And they had wow. no idea that he was saying... That that, that that what he was proclaiming was totally against what they stood for. Oh, but wow. yeah, it showed up in some Christian books. Actually, a lot of Christian books. And a part of the reason was because they had Christian rappers like T-Bone on it. And I and I, I want to say he had BBJ, who at one time, if you if y'all both remember, was known as the Christian Biggie Smalls. Um, and yeah, and but he, but he also ha- had his regulars like Fat Joe was on there, Rock Goddess, people, you know. People he normally collaborates with, but people never listen to the record. They they just saw Spiritually Mind, and then it shows up in Christian bookstores. But 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 that record had some. It was some shaky moments on that record. I'll just say. <laughs> it's funny that that original Death record is called Spiritual Mental Physical. What a trip if that showed up in Christian bookstores, huh? <laughs> oh, that'd be crazy. That would be crazy. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you have you have a bookstore who's right wing and then there's a song politicians in my eye. <laughs> right. Because there's no left wing Christian bookstore that I know of. But anyway, I don't think uh, so. Either. Yeah. I mean, I should start one. Man. It's a niche in the market. 
answer. There's yeah. a hole in the market. Um, anything else you want to talk about? I, do you want to talk about your own musical work? Um, I, I've heard some of what you did. It, it's pretty good. I like what you do. It has that sort of like late aughts, sort of Basement Jacks-ish. Yeah. That, that's a compliment. I love Basement Jacks. Yeah. Um, I started emceeing under the name Gilead 7 in what? Probably the late 90s. I would say um, I was I was rhyming a bit before then, but I, I started calling myself Gilead 7 in 98 because I was an undergrad Judson University, which was at that time Judson College. They, I had a radio station there and I had a radio show on the station. And I was trying to figure out what to call myself. And a friend of mine used to call me Gilead because we went to a small private Christian school. And in Bible readings, that name would always come up reading the Hebrew Bible. And then my name was Gil, so it just fit. But I'm like, I was thinking about like, you know what? That's kind of cool. So I started calling myself that. And um, I've been that since 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 then. Um, So I did a lot of solo records, which spanned cassette, vinyl, um, CD. And then I connected with a crew that was established by one of my best friends, IB Focus, um, called Tomorrow Kings. He established the crew. It's six of us now. At one time, it was nine of us. Um, and we did a record in 2013 with a, with, up with a, a producer, Vile, who was affiliated with Def Jux. Um, oh, never was go. an artist, but he, he was affiliated with Vile. He was, if, if, you, might, you might know the name. Yeah, V-Y-L-E. So we did, did a record with him called Nigger Rig Time Machine which came out in 2013. It was, it was recorded between probably like 2010 and 2013. Uh, we chop it up and send a block, spin it round, show you how to kick it with Dante. A caramelist pilot is only your entree. We blazing in the attic, serving eagles the hombres. A novelist artistry, man, part of the unscathed. We made it through the murder hall with crackers and saute. Niggas still caught up in a trap with one leg. Searching in the dark, still blinded by sun rays. We analyze. You know, we've been going for a while. Any final thoughts? Uh, anything that you'd like to plug? Yeah. First of all, th- thank you both for having me on. It's really, really appreciated. I look forward to having I mean, you both on All Things Cosmic. Um, yeah, pick up the text toward Afro-Diasporic and Afro-Futurist philosophies of religion um, because the writers in the text did some really amazing things, I think, that will benefit anyone who reads if you're interested in Afrofuturism, um, philosophy of religion, and cultural productions of the diaspora. And also um, My Underground Rap is Religion, which came out in 2019, hard to cover in 2021, paperback through through Rutledge. And yeah, just be safe and enjoy life. That's about it. <laughs> I think be safe and enjoy life is great advice. I was just going to say, John, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to build with both of you, you know. All right. Let's, let's talk again soon. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, it was super fun. And let's, yeah, let's definitely be in conversation. All right. All right. Have a good night, guys. All right. Peace. Bye.